they will see a dog and like point at it and you'll say to them, dog. And what's happening in their mind is something kind of like non-human walks on the four legs, furry tail dog. And then later on, they see something like a horse. They will point at it and instinctually you'll, they'll say dog. And you'll say, no, 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 that's not a dog. That's a horse. Well, something monumental takes place in the mind of a child at that point. And these two things are good, great examples of the difference between assimilation and accommodation. To accept that, that a horse is a horse and not a dog, you have to create another category, which is something akin to animal. And within that category, you have dogs and horses. Because you have this thing, it's a non-human, four legs, furry, but not dog, which means that there are other things that fit in this that can be nuanced and separate. I need to create a higher level abstraction in which those things can exist. That is literally expanding your mind. And that is the a new layer of abstraction. We never stop doing that, adding and adding and adding layers that can combine and interact with one another. When you see the horse and you try to call it a dog, that's assimilation. You're taking everything you've got so far and trying to fit it into that model. When you have to expand the model to accommodate the, the new thing, that's accommodation. So we're doing that thousands of times a minute constantly. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is David McRaney, host of the popular science podcast, You Are Not So Smart, and David seeks to shed light on the surprising psychology about why people change their minds and how we can persuade others. In his latest book, How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion, David delves into the latest psychological and neuroscientific research and explains that to change minds, we must do what the science suggests, avoid debates, and start having conversations. So let's get this conversation going and welcome David McRaney to the Adversity Advantage podcast. David McRaney, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be here. I am... uh deeply honored and I am interested to see what you have to say about all of this. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thanks for having me. Me too. And I'm super intrigued because you're so fired up about this topic. Like, you know, sometimes when people are doing these book tours, they're just, their energy is just depleted from going to interview, to interview, to interview. And you're like, I'm ready to rock and roll. Let's go. And, you know, your book is called How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion. And where I wanted to start is with all your research and doing this book, you put like blood, sweat, and tears into this thing. What was the most like shocking, surprising thing to you about all of this when writing the book? It's weird. I could, I could, I could think of more than one thing. It's hard to pick out what is the thing that was the biggest epiphany for me. I think professionally, I was astonished that a lot of the things I had been proselytizing for years on my other, on my platform, like you are not so smart. I used to say people are, re- our reasoning is flawed and irrational. And you can take the concept of maybe locking your keys in your car or sending an email to the wrong person and scale that up to explain why we don't or doing a great job of climate change. Or you could explain horrible moments in human history through that lens. And so in the process of writing this book and spending time with experts who study this very particular thing, which is how people 
engage one another in an argumentative or deliberative framework and try to come to consensus or not? What happens when a person resists? What's the nature of all that? What is persuasion? What's not? What's coercion? All those things. I started to get a different picture, which is humans are not, this, our reasoning is not flawed and irrational. It's just biased and lazy, which is actually a feature and not a bug. That was a huge thing. We can get deep, we can get deeper into it. That was one of the big ones. The other one was this concept of, I used to think there were some people who were simply unreachable. Some people you could not persuade or who you could not get to see your humanity, who if you were trying to remove some sort of harm from the world, you get to leave those people out. And I no longer feel that way. I feel that there's there's no one who's unreachable. This sense of something being, so a person being unreachable, I now think of, and I say this in the book, it's like trying to reach the the moon with a ladder and upon failing, assuming, well, the moon's unreachable. Uh, the frustration you feel when you're engaging with people, whether they're in your family or online or in politics or something, that you can't seem to move the conversation forward. I now feel, thanks to working on this project for so long, that that frustration is best directed at yourself for employing bad faith techniques or not actually being interested in why the other person feels differently, not having a certain kind of empathy or, or willingness to give them space to work out what's going on. And but if you do those things in a particular way from a particular like intentional position, I feel that you can really make significant change in the world one person at a time. So those are two things that are, that my perspective shifted in writing the book. So it sounds like a marketing thing, but it's true. Like in writing a book about how minds change, I changed my mind about all sorts of stuff. And that's included in the narrative. That's awesome. And I, I was, I guess, kind of expecting to hear that a bit, because if you look at your work before in the name of your podcast, it's called You Are Not So Smart. And then you're, <laughs> and then you're right. So from the outside, you're like, wait a second, this guy had a had a whole like brand built on not being so smart. And then you're, you're going to write a book about how you can change the belief, not only of yourself, but other people like what happened. And so I'm glad you brought that up, I guess, to start. Uh, I guess moving forward, I guess just to to set up the conversation so people can get more of an understanding on certain terms that I'm sure you're going to use a lot. What's the difference between like what is a belief, what is a value, and how are they different? Wow, I'm so glad you asked that question. I often I feel like I want to start there sometimes because I had to start there. The reason I had to start there was there's two weird things here. One is a lot of the mistakes we make and a lot of the misconceptions that we have as lay people when we enter into this space, turns out that those are the exact same mistakes and misconceptions that scientists had as they started trying to understand this going from about the 1940s forward. And their like, epiphanies are also ours if we engage with this. The fact that the history lined up one-to-one -one was really neat. The other was oftentimes would get into situations where I had a hard time reaching out to people because I would make the mistake of thinking I was trying to change a person's belief when what I was really trying to do was affect their attitude towards something. Or, and, and in both cases, I wasn't really eager or interested in what might be motivating them to feel that way in the first place. The difference is, and I can tell you, I, I went to Jim Alcock, who's a belief researcher early on and said, uh, hey, it's a, you know, it's like a little journalism trick. You're like, pretend I'm five years old and uh, I'm asking you, hey, what's a belief? Because He'd been studying it for so long, for like 40 years. And his actual reaction to that was, that's a tough one. And <laughs> <laughs> I felt like my stomach dropped because I was like, oh, I'm not going to be able to write a book like I, like I used to do this, this thing where I was just going to talk to experts, translate what they told me, build a lattice of like explanation with some jokes in it and everything. 
And I was like, why can't you tell me what a belief is? He's like, because I've been studying it for all of my life. I can't get, just give you a simple definition. It's a process. It's not something you, it's not an object in your mind. It's not a possession on a shelf. It's a process of arriving at a feeling of certainty or a lack thereof. And there's all these associative networks. So that being said, there, there used to be in psychology, this misconception that all these terms are interchangeable, belief, attitude, value, opinion, assumption, norm. These things could, were just like, depending on how you want to talk about it, pretty much we're talking about the same things. Now we divide these into very specific mental constructs and the ones that I focus on the book for the sake of clarity for the reader, because you kind of put most everything within these three buckets, beliefs, attitudes, and values. And a, a belief is information encoded in the brain. That, and along with that is this somewhat emotional feeling that goes with it of certainty or a lack thereof. High certainty, and you consider this information that is true, low certainty, information that is false. That's how come you can have knowledge about you know the avengers and spider-man and stuff even though you know those things are fictional but that's separate from an attitude an attitude is an, is an evaluation that goes toward the positive side or the negative side of the scale it's also associated with the feeling of like attraction and repulsion for and against that is different from a belief if i were to ask you do you think a certain politician is a good person if you say yes that feels like you're saying that's what i believe that is a fact but really you're just expressing to me the emotion you felt when i asked you that question and how if it's closer to positive it gets the more i give you that answer the other thing is a value and a value is where you place priorities where you're going to put your time money and effort and your emotional work in your life you know what goes above what what goes below what and all three of these things are constantly moving around as we experience life and interact with other people and they all affect one another. So in a lot of ways, this is a artificial abstraction to make sense of how minds do anything, but it's very useful to divide them up into three categories. And I try to start out by doing that. And it's important because if you want to change somebody's mind, you need to know what it is you're trying to change. Or if you're trying to change your own mind, you know what it is you're trying to change. Yeah, I love how you unpacked all of those because they are, they're not interchangeable, right? They're so different in the way that not, not only that they're used, but the way that they're formed, right? And I think it would really help people understand like how all of this impacts our lives if we can first go back and say, okay, like, like how is a belief formed? Is it formed from our parents? Is our attitude, the way we carry ourselves formed from that as well? Our values, like how is all this like created in our brains? I mean, and where does it start? This is... One of those things where like the reason the book is not named how to change people's minds is I did not want to write that book. I did not want this to be how to win friends and influence people or anything in that domain. It was never the purpose, never the intention. Even though there's persuasion stuff in it, I wanted to understand how do minds change, which we change our minds in all sorts of ways through watching one movie, reading one book, having one conversation, just experiencing something. And persuasion is another way that that happens. But all of these things are at the level of neurons, the same things are taking place. And when I got into that part of the research and I was spending time with experts in this place and then reading old books and new books alike and all the literature in between, it was, I was like, oh, wow, this is, I understand why philosophers wander off into the woods and don't come back. You know what I mean? Like, they're like, I'm, I'm done. I'm getting a cabin next to a river and I'm, all I'm going to do is like bake things out of leaves and see how that works out for me. I get it because you can really try to swallow the ocean when you get into this sort of stuff. Partially because even in science, we're still at the cutting edge of understanding all of these things. And you're, you're starting to ask questions that are similar to what is consciousness. And in philosophy, well, there's just an endless amount of material there where no matter what it is you're trying to understand, you can produce 200 books about the thing 
and still not really have any kind of definite conclusion. So the good news is we have a pretty good understanding of what's going on at the highest level. I talk about it in the book in terms of assimilation and accommodation. These are sort of the twin engines of how we update our models of reality. We come into the world with some stuff sort of preloaded onto the neural net. We can recognize faces, acquire language. We understand social cues and we're geared up for a lot of things right off the bat because we're a social primate. We're ultra social primate. And then we get shaped, sharpened and flattened by the environment we grew up within, the culture and the institutions and the families we're within. And then it gets further updated by the experiences we have going along in life. What happens is you is are two processes. This was first identified by Piaget. And I love these two things, assimilation and accommodation. The easiest way to picture this without having to go through a ton of uh, psychological terms and then just defining them. When there's a child who has their learning language for the first time and they're learning how to think with language, which is often very categorical, they will see a dog and like point at it and you'll say to them, dog. And what's happening in their mind is something kind of like non-human walks on the four legs, furry tail dog. And then later on, they see something like a horse. They will point at it and usually instinctually you'll, they'll say dog. And you'll say, no, 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 that's not a dog. That's a horse. Well, something monumental takes place in the mind of a child at that point. And these two things are good, great examples of the difference between assimilation and accommodation. To accept that, that a horse is a horse and not a dog, you have to create another category, which is something akin to animal. And within that category, you have dogs and horses. Because you have this thing, it's a non-human, four legs, walks on four legs, furry, but not dog, which means that there are other things that fit in this that can be nuanced and separate. I need to create a higher level abstraction in which those things can exist. That is literally expanding your mind. And that is the a new layer of abstraction. We never stop doing that, adding and adding and adding layers that can combine and interact with one another. When you see the horse and you try to call it a dog, that's assimilation. You're taking everything you've got so far and trying to fit it into that model. When you have to expand the model to accommodate the, the new thing, that's accommodation. So we're doing that thousands of times a minute constantly. Some of the things we're interacting with, we're assimilating. Sometimes every once in a while, something is either so uncertain, so ambiguous, generates so much cognitive dissonance, challenges something we understood before, we must accommodate in order to make sense of the world and move forward in it. And that process is continuous all throughout life. And that is how minds just in general, that's how minds change. When you attempt to change someone else's mind, what you're trying to do is in some way interact with those two systems to get a particular outcome. With everything getting more and more expensive, I am constantly looking for new ways to cut costs and find savings and also help my personal training clients do the same. That's why when it comes to buying my organic groceries and household goods, I am all about Thrive Market. With Thrive Market, you can shop everything from healthy pantry essentials to sustainable meat and seafood to frozen fruits and vegetables and non-toxic beauty products, and they are all delivered right to your door. Thrive Market carefully vets every product they carry so you can trust that if it's there, it's the best. Finding savings on items that matter most to you is easy with Thrive Market. You can find what you need because they have over 5,000 food, home, and beauty products. So if you are looking for plant-based, keto, or gluten-free, Thrive Market has you covered. Some of the things that I've really been enjoying from them lately are their chicken breasts, their fish, and their frozen veggies. Plus, when you shop with Thrive Market, you can save time and gas by not having to make that trip to the store because you can buy everything you need online. 
And best of all, if you happen to find a lower price elsewhere, Thrive Market will match it. So join Thrive Market today to get 40% off your first order and a free gift worth over $50. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Doug Fitness to get 40% off your first order and a free gift worth over $50. That's thrivemarket.com slash Doug Fitness. Again, it's thrivemarket.com slash Doug Fitness. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I have been using for quite some time now. Lately, I have been trying to use it as an alternative to coffee as I am trying to cut back. I can say I think it might be working. Using it can be as simple as adding it to a smoothie or mixing it with water or your favorite nut milk. Cacao Bliss starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com slash Again, it's earthechofoods.com slash to check it out and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. Right. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad you kind of dove into the science of that because I think that helps people kind of understand like, all right, we're talking about beliefs. We're talking about how can we change our own minds? We're talking about how we can talk to other people about our own beliefs or their beliefs without fighting. Like, like, where does this all come from? Like, how does this all begin for us? And with all that said, there are so many influences now, like as people are adults, when it comes to our beliefs, we value, whether it be social media, whether it be what news channels we watch, whether it be who we spend our time with, whether it be the books we read. In, in your research, and maybe even based on your own experience, like which one or which two has the biggest influence on where we develop our own bias and our own opinions or our own uh, beliefs and values towards the way of the world? See, in that whole process that I'm talking about, you take this model you've got and you are confronted with something new, something novel and something perhaps even ambiguous, you'll disambiguate it through all those things. But we're also motivated reasoners. We're mo everything in human cognition is motivated. If you've never confronted the term motivated reasoning, you have, you just had never seen it written out somewhere. If you've ever convinced yourself that it's okay to eat a piece of chocolate cake, you've experienced motivated reasoning. You came up with a reason to do something because you were motivated for reasons that maybe you couldn't even articulate or maybe aren't even aware of. At the base level, like there are like hormones like ghrelin in your system that are determining that you have this desire. So you have these deep drives, these deep shaped by natural selection, biological drives that are in creating these feelings and these impulses. And then at somewhere along the processing chain, something is getting above the line where you can experience it and have it some sort of, you can introspect in some way where you will be able to identify something. And in there, it'll be this desire to eat some chocolate cake. <laughs> and if you want that cake, you can come up with a reason to do it. You'll say like, well, I haven't had a lot of sweets lately. I think it's okay. Or I'm going to make sure I exercise after this. There's a way to reason your way into it, to justify it. And we tend to engage in the behavior 
we tend to make the plans. We tend to think in the direction of that which is easiest to justify above all else. And with that being an underlying uh, system within, within us, the thing that, to answer your question like directly, the thing that motivates us more than anything, the thing that creates the most resistance to new information is the goal of belonging is the easiest way to frame it, I guess. We're ultra social primates. The way we survived for millennia and what shaped us into the format we have now is our inclination to be good members of our groups and to constantly be signaling so and to constantly be aware of our reputation within our trusted peer groups and to identify who's inside, who's outside. Those things take precedent over everything. The great sociologist Brooke Harrington told me if there was an E equals MC square of social science, it was the fear of social death is greater than the fear of physical death. If we are faced with such a outcome, we will always choose to keep our reputation instead of keep our, our health and safety. And far less than that is the desire to be right about something or to have any sort of um, sense of true beliefs or accurate beliefs or less harmful attitudes. Those all take at least a one step back from, are we being a good member of our group? The groups that tend to be, to tend to uh, make things like spaceships and iPhones and vaccines, or that tend to cause, move the, the species forward in a way that pulls harm out of the system and, and gets us closer to treating each other with, with in a way that we can move forward as a, as a species, tend to have figured out a way for their groups to value those things as uh, signifiers that they're good members of their groups, right? So there's a way to get the two things to work together where you're, you can satisfy your belonging goals by seeking accuracy. You can satisfy your belonging goals by trying to uh, reduce harm in the world. And, but there's plenty of other groups who didn't do that and they end up doing things where to satisfy their belonging goals, they become less right about things or they start putting harm into the system. But either way, we're just geared toward uh, being social and we will, we we're very sensitive to things that will incur social costs and sanctions or things that will give us social rewards. That motivates us more than anything. And oftentimes when you're dealing with someone who has, who's really resistant to what you're offering them, somewhere within them, maybe it's not articulated or salient, they're aware of what might happen if they were to commit to shifting their attitude, belief, or value in a way that would incur social costs. I mean, I think that all rings true. And I think you, you said a lot there that that really like encapsulates like why in a way why we're so polarized, right? As a society yeah. is that we're, we get caught up in these echo chambers sometimes based on like who we follow on social media, what we watch on TV or the people we spend time with. And we're afraid to like go against the grain or disagree with somebody that is in our tribe, so to speak, because we're afraid of being outcasted or what are they going to say about us? And I think that at the end of the day, like we all want that sense of belonging, like you said. And personally, I've always kind of been middle of the road politically. And I mean, and, and I guess up until maybe five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago, like people didn't fight about politics and about stuff online like they do now. And I mean, I've seen it get to the point now, and I think we were talking about this before we recorded, that it's hard for people who don't agree with each other to even have conversations anymore because of the height of emotions that are at stake when people are having these conversations. So so maybe if you could, in your own terms and the research you've done based on what you know about the brain and the science behind all this, like like why are we so polarized as a society and, and what can we do as human beings to do a better job at having conversations with people we don't agree with? It's one of those perfect storm kind of situations. This is not the first time we've been polarized like this, and it won't be the last. The great Clay Shirky once said that technology doesn't, I'm paraphrasing to the best of my knowledge, technology doesn't create 
behavior. It lowers the cost to exhibit behavior that's been around for a million years. We are going through a, and if I also, I love Marshall McLuhan stuff, highly recommend and reading all of his old books for somehow they were written in the fifties and they're, <laughs> they're more important than ever. He talks a lot about what happens in information revolutions where, especially anything that affects the information exchange ecosystems. And we're experiencing that a lot right now. We had a lot of stuff all at once. If the 20th, if the 19th century was uh, all these revolutions in industrialization, we have in the 20th and going in 21st century, all these revolutions in information exchange. And you go from the printing press, you know, in the 1500s, 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 becoming really popular straight through very quickly to radio and television and, and film and then stored media like VHS tapes and records and CDs and then very quickly to internet and then social media. And then all of this now on our phones, this brought a lot of people who are outside of the conversation into the conversation. So one of the things that's happening is a lot of people who were never invited to the conversation have now joined in on the conversation. And there's going to be a lot of effects from the first wave, first couple waves of that. Some people's voices who were never represented or underrepresented are finally being able to speak. And other people who had a tremendous amount of privilege are reacting to that. And some of them are reacting to it very poorly. That's going to last for a while. Another thing that's happening is everyone is very aware that when you, that everyone's a broadcaster in some ways. So any thought, feeling, emotion that you express has the potential for an audience to then evaluate and come back with their notes on that. And we're very sensitive to it. So that changes the nature of the way we discuss things with one another. And all of this expands out into politicians are aware of this now and are being affected by it. And it changes the way that politics are, are engaged in. So a lot of what's happening is that these ancient mechanisms for conversation and deliberation and argumentation are playing out in on platforms that are a lot different than, say, the dinner table or a city council meeting or a bar or a pub. Most of these platforms that we're on now are very they're geared toward engagement and engagement is something that you get more engagement from people having dead end debates and discussions where there is no closure of the loop and that you can depend on posting the same thing over and over again and getting a lot of engagement from it to the point that you can program robots to do it. <laughs> and then the, the, we do that now. So all that takes place and all the, all that really drives us into communicating in a way where we're very often signaling whether or not we're a good member of whatever group because it's important to us to keep our reputations going. That's one of the things that's going on. And I think that's obvious to people, to a lot of people at this point, but there's also something called the law of group polarization where that's uh, Cass Sustein's work where you, if you, in any environment in which people start expressing themselves, you enter into the environment trying to, you have a intuition as to where you are on the scale. Like you were saying, you feel kind of middle of the road, right? In some environments you'll get in there and people start expressing their ideas and it's algorithmic. You know, you're thinking, am I in the middle of the road? Because if someone in the group is extreme, is super extreme in one direction and someone is not, and there's not many people extreme in that direction, the middle moves to being between where you are compared to those people. And then you will start expressing yourself in a way to try to maintain your identity as a middle of the road person. But the way you're expressing it in that environment wouldn't be the same as it would be in a different environment. And in that environment, you're expressing things that show you're definitely in the middle of this particular group, which if that puts you a little more toward the extreme, other people who are thinking they were less extreme than you, they're going to have to move to also get where they think they are. And now the whole group starts moving. 
And in general, what happens is a group will enter into a space like that and everyone will become a little more extreme because of it. And that causes the people who are already very extreme to become mega polarized. And then they leave that group and go into the general population of discussion and they're bringing this new sort of extremist attitude into it. And then the last thing I'd say that is influencing all this is we're extreme social primates. And there's something called the minimal group paradigm that was first introduced by the scientist Henri Tajfel. And he was trying to understand uh, things like genocide and things like mass, massive uh, strangeness in human behavior. And he wanted to understand, is there some, what causes people to uh, go into this us versus them framing? And at the time he was doing the research, this assumption was that it was, that it was, it was individual charismatic actors like uh, politicians and demagogues who would rise to power and then influence people. So he was like, okay, I'm going to do research on this. I'm going to study this. I'm going to strip everything I can away from the, my subjects and introduce one little item at a time that they can use as an identifier that I am the, such a person. And I'll work my way up until I find the minimal group paradigm, the thing that seems to be what people will form a group around. And to his surprise, uh, he found there was no such thing. Human beings will form groups about anything at all that will allow them to feel like they're in one group or another. And this research has been done, it's been repeated a gazillion times. It's one of the more ro most robust findings in psychology. You can just tell people, they can just have people look at artwork and say, you're a fan of this art artist and or not this artist. He had them look at pictures of dots and he randomized whether or not he told you you overestimated or underestimated how many dots there were. The moment you were told you were either an underestimator or an overestimator, all your behavior would shift to favoring in future experiments outcomes for the group that you thought you were a member of and pushing against and trying to disfavor the people who were in the other group. So given any opportunity to identify yourself, you will do so in a way that identifies you as either us or them. And we just have more tools for doing that than we ever had before. And we don't really have a literacy or a understanding of it to the extent that we're aware of the dangers of it. And we, we keep falling into sort of, uh, we keep stepping in, in uh, we keep stepping in it. <laughs> you know, we keep, we're not good at this yet is, is what it comes down to. We've been thrown into a new ecosystem and we're not really good at it yet. And all these things combined, it's, it's a confluence of psychological influences that have led us into this polarized state. So well said. And I think at the end of the day, you're right. Like the more things I mean, I guess like the, the more things become polarized, there's going to be more extremes created from the polarization, I guess, as you kind of. The identity thing is not just politics. That's just one of the things that just happens to be the thing that's when we have a big fragment, fragmented society like we have now, where like there are people who are tabletop gamers and there are people who are mountain climbers. We have this huge fragmented world where we have lots of identities, but the easiest identity up front used to be like, what culture are you from or what is your religion? As those, as those things become more secularized and flattened, it's just easier to say, are you on the left or are you on the right? And that's my easiest way to identify you as us, them, so I can gauge whether or not to trust you as a potential ally or enemy. But even within those other things, the volume has been turned way up on self-identification where people will say, I am a vegan or I am a gamer. Like these are identity, these are like have become, that is who I am. Not that I am into that thing. I am that kind of person and I'm in that culture. I'm in that tribe. That's something that the internet has deeply influenced us to do, where we can form groups so quickly now and then spend all of our time hanging out with them virtually. We've started to push those identities in front of ourselves and become that first before we are who we are second. 
Yeah, I was just going to say like you're spot on because what I've noticed and you it's funny you bring up like the vegan thing because it's like I see this polarization with vegans and then you have carnivores and then obviously in politics it's the left and the right in religion it's like Christian and and non-Christian and it's like you said the gamers and like uh, mountain climbers and there's there's polarities that exist within our society in many facets. So we talked about like why we've gotten to this point and based on the work that you've done What's the path out? I mean, I, I would say in my belief is that the path out based on what you've said for most of these issues is to for us to change our attitude about the belief of somebody else and about, or about the belief that we disagree with and be able to develop some level of compassion and empathy to have a better conversation. Like, what are your thoughts? Well, the first thing is to develop cognitive empathy. Everything that we've talked about so far I implore you, I plead that you recognize the person you're talking to who, you, who you're having some sort of disagreement with or conflict, or it's very difficult for them, for you to convince them that they're causing harm in this world or that you, they have some sort of fact-based belief that you are well aware is incorrect and you're not getting moving, you're not gaining any ground in your conversation with them. Recognize that they're arriving at this spot the same way you did through all of these influences and they could also be trapped in some ways inside certain kind of social prisons they they have to think about they have to really consider what they think feel and believe about the issues that we're talking about because there are implications for that and they don't have any choice in the matter just like you don't have any choice like if i ask you uh, like how do you feel about something like gun control and you can very quickly tell me how you feel about it like it just comes right out of you where does it come from? It's almost like asking like, what is your mother's name? And you tell me, and then I ask, how do you, how did you do that? What happened in your brain for that to happen? Like it's, it's not available to you. It's not something that's, they call it the introspection illusion of psychology. So you need to have some cognitive empathy for the fact that people arrive at the, their conclusions and their attitudes through a long process before you met them. And it happens to them more than it, it's not necessarily a choice that, and so up front, that's important. And then what that means is the conversations that will have that are most likely to create change in this world, that are most likely to at least reduce conflict, so that you can gain from disagreement. Because I know we all don't. We all have friends that we know if we go to a movie with them, uh, there's a chance they'll hate the movie, and then we'll like the movie, and then we'll have a nice discussion about it afterward. There are all these friends that we know we can invite to dinner who have all sorts of weird attitudes and beliefs about all sorts of stuff, and we might disagree with them, but we're still friends, and we can gain from that disagreement. There's some sort of overlap where we go, I never thought about it that way. I've, you've shifted me a little bit, but I've shifted you a little bit. That's what the whole point of all this is. Like That's what these mechanisms evolved to do. The, the idea is that we, it, we evolved as groups. There was a group selection process. The groups that did better are the ones that survived, not the individuals necessarily. And the groups that were able to reach consensus and and get something out of their internal disagreement are the ones that are the most successful. So we're already set up to do it this way. But this is a massive society. That's that's for a group of hundreds of millions of people. So, But the good news is when you meet somebody one-to-one, you can throw all those hundreds of millions of things out of the way and and really engage them in, in a one-on-one way that can get arrive at something nice for both of you. And my advice throughout the book is, and I use the, the dress as an example to get people into this, we could talk about that, but that's a whole, that, that'll take 10 minutes. But the, everybody remembers the dress, I hope, was the thing that some people saw as black and blue and some saw as white and gold. If you're not familiar with it, just Google the dress and you will see it one color or the other. And you have no choice in the matter, but see it that way. And the reason you have no choice in the matter to see it that way is because of 
All sorts of stuff that happens in the brain when you see an overexposed image. The more experience you've had with sunlight or incandescent light determines how you see that image. You did the stuff in your life that, that created those experiences that led to those priors. And those priors are what lead to your visual conclusions. But in the moment, what you see is something you have no choice over. If you were to engage into an argument with someone who saw it differently than you, and your goal was to prove that you're right and they're wrong, that the way you see it is the way to see it, and the way they see it is not the way to see it, it's very unlikely you're, first of all, you're not going to get them to see it your way. That's They can't help it. And the other thing that's going to happen is you're going to miss out on an opportunity to understand why do you see it differently? And that's where the actual truth lies. If you engage with someone in such a way where the it's it's in a debate format where I need to win and you need to lose. The winner of the debate learns nothing. They leave the conversation with the same thing they went into it with. However, if you reframe it as let's work together to try to solve a mystery of why we disagree on this. Now you're working past that line and you're going to go help the other person. It's just, you're creating space for both parties to investigate. I wonder why I feel this way about it. I wonder what did lead to this certainty, to this attitude and so on. I wonder what values are important to me and why I feel this way about the issue. And in that space, there is opportunity for your certainty to go up or down, your attitude to go more positive or negative, your values to shift. And that's what changing a mind is. And it, there's only one way into it, and that's reframing it out of that debate space into that conversation space. That's so beautifully said. And it, it seems to me like just throughout what you say in your book and just throughout our, our conversation now that the goal isn't to completely just change somebody's mind. The goal is to come to the table and change your perspective on how to have the conversation, take the debate word out of it, develop some empathy for the other person's side. And the goal is to be able to, based on the conversation you have, to make little shifts in your perspective, their perspective, to come together to then leave and feel like you gained something from that conversation. 1,000% yes. And there are steps you can take to, to ensure that you are more likely to have that kind of conversation, but it all has to start with that sort of step zero, which is ask yourself, why do you want to change your mind, change that person's mind in the first place? Like that's an important question to ask. And then if it's an, if you feel very strongly about it, before you even start, ask yourself, I wonder why I feel so strongly about this. What is it that's motivating me? What is it that led to my feelings on this, my certainties? And then enter into the fray in a way that uh, hopefully you will be, able, be open to, I might learn something here. And they will also, they will match it. We have an instinct to match it. We will match the other person's vulnerability. We will match the other person's desire to, to establish trust. We'll match each other's desire to disagree with benefits. <laughs> right. And does, does all this also apply? Cause I know a lot of, of the book and your work and your work is based on like societal beliefs and what people like believe to be true as far as society. But does this apply also like for ourselves? Cause as a, I'm a personal trainer. And one of the things that I will deal with sometimes with my clients is they'll lose belief in themselves to mm. be able to achieve a goal. They'll lose belief in themselves sometimes to be able to like run a mile. I mean, I could throw, I could throw out so many examples, but I, hopefully you understand what I'm yeah. getting at. Like, like, does this process also work for somebody to be able to change like a limiting belief within, the, within themselves? Absolutely. Yeah. The, in the book, I spend time with all these different organizations that 
AB tested their way into understanding this stuff, deep canvassing, street epistemology, smart politics, and so on. Most of them were unaware that there was a therapeutic history to this exact same sort of interaction, because in a therapeutic situation, you have the client and you have the professional. And in every line of therapy, there have been these moments where the whole field is like, ah, we're kind of starting to get into arguments with my clients. And there were, and each one has tried to, to apply scientific and therapeutic like rigor to how do you get past that hump? And one of the things that emerged out of that is uh, motivational interviewing. And then another thing is cognitive behavioral therapy. Both those share similar qualities across the board with all the other things I talk about in the book. The idea is, I mean, there are many ideas in here, but one of the things is when you have this negative self-talk and these limiting beliefs, they usually follow a sort of processing flow. And somewhere in there is this reasoning justification process. And reasoning in psychology is just coming up with reasons for what you think, feel, and believe. And there can be so many uh, unknown to yourself right off the bat, like you haven't introspected in a way to know, to articulate why you may feel a certain way, why you may hold a certain attitude, or why you may, why you may have certain triggers around certain things. But once you have the feeling, you will attempt to justify that feeling in some sort of way that seems reasonable to other people. And it starts with self-talk. And if you, you, we all, even if you think that maybe you're outside this, you've done this. If you've ever been in the shower and been thinking of the argument you're going to put on Facebook, like if you've ever been you know, like, I'm like oh God, then I'm going to say it like this. Well, if you've ever worked on a comment before, you're doing that thing. And we often will do that thing privately. Like if you feel this limiting self-talk that you're describing, you'll try to find a way to make it seem reasonable and justifiable to have that feeling in the first place. And then once you have it out there and articulated as some sort of proposition or argument, you'll defend that proposition and argument as if you're staged behind a lectern at a debate with some some debate upon it that you've created on your own, some some other entity that you think is going to try to challenge you. So all of these processes can, all these uh, persuasion things I talk about in the book, including motivational interviewing, can be applied to yourself. Just go step by step as if you're talking to to another party, but you're talking to yourself. And one of the easiest ways to like start unfurling it is, let me pick something very neutral. Like um, let's say you're watching Stranger Things right now. And I ask you on a scale from one to 10, like how, how much did you enjoy the first season? Like if you, would you give it, if you were to score it, like it was your movie critic. And let's say a person gives it like a seven, eight, or let's say they give it like a, a nine. And then I say, okay, well, then how do you feel about the newest season by comparison? Like, well, I'd probably give it like a seven. Now, the next question is, why does that number feel right to you? Or if you're doing it in motivational interviewing, you'd say, why not a six? In motivational interviewing, for anyone who's not familiar with it, it was developed to help people escape addiction and alcoholism. Most people go to, to get treatment because they, they know that they want to change, but they also have strong feelings about wanting to continue doing the thing and they want to help. And you will use it in a behavioral format in that way. You'd say, what is your intention to quit drinking, like on a scale of one to 10? Or, or what What do you feel about this thing? We used it for, uh, I did an example of this in the book about vaccine hesitancy, like on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to get vaccinated? And if someone says, I'm a five, let's say, you can ask something like, why not a four? And what you're, what's going to happen is you're going to produce that same justification reasoning process will produce these justifications for why you aren't against it necessarily. And then you take those and you try to produce as many of those as possible in the direction of 
the change? Or like, why would you, obviously you can articulate reasons why you aren't lower on the scale, which means you do have the ability to counter argue against yourself. This is a format that works really well in therapy. Encouraging that kind of uh, introspection and metacognition is incredibly powerful. We don't necessarily do it on our own. It's very helpful to have another person there to reflect and conversate and give us an opportunity to, to bounce ideas off of. But that that number scale trick works really well, well really well, because we often like don't even think about it. Like, do you love? I love moving movie movie examples, as you can tell, because it's nice and neutral. Like, do you like the movie The Godfather? Sure. What would you give it on a scale of one to ten? I give it an eight. Why not a ten? The next thing you say after that is deeply introspective in a way that you may never have considered. Just trying to go in there and go, where do these feelings come from? Opens up space for you to change your mind. That's what it's all about. Yeah, I actually learned a lot about this in a course I took to get a certification through the American Council of Exercise, which is I became a behavior change specialist through them. And I learned all about this motivational interviewing stuff. And I'm like, gosh, like this should be taught to like every health professional who wants to like work with people to change their health goals because it really gets people to dig deep within themselves. Because I think that per people respond way better when you're able to ask better questions and they can feel empowered and and have autonomy to like feel like they're they have some say in the game, if you will, versus just being told what to do or what they need to change. Because deep down, in a way, we're smart people. Like we know what we need to do, right? And take exactly what you just said. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Take exactly what you just said and apply that to literally any difficult conversation you're having with other people. Giving the other person that feeling of I have autonomy here. I am not being shamed for how I think, feel, and believe currently. I have the opportunity to think this through on my own and explore it. This person is going to hold that space for me. It's almost impossible for a person not to talk themselves out of the current position that they're in, in some way. Some people go, some people have 180s. That happens. It, but I wouldn't make that your goal. Your goal is it's going to move a little bit. And the idea is if you care about the issue you're discussing, you want to be right, or you, and I mean right in the sense of either you want to be morally, factually, politically, ethically, you want to be somewhere in the domain of more right than wrong. And if that's your, your goal, then you should feel okay with having the kind of conversation that might reveal some of the ways that you're missing out as well. And that's what you're offering to, to each other. You'll get something tremendous out of having conversations going forward. I agree a hundred percent. And it's so true. I mean, in order to help understand someone's perspective and, and help them out of a situation you might not agree with. You just got to learn to ask better questions. And there was something you said a few minutes ago that stuck with me that I definitely want to get into because I felt this way. And it was like the example of like when you're in the shower and you're in the bathroom and you're like ruminating about you can't wait to like argue with that person <laughs> and you can't wait to like fire back. And even though like deep down, like afterwards, you're going to feel like crap because you're like, man, like I like like that person's a good friend of mine or I love that person. Like, why did I say that? Or why couldn't I have just like like let my emotions calm down a little bit and then maybe have a, have a more logical conversation? What goes on in the brain when something like that happens? Happens. Are we getting this euphoric like dopamine or adrenaline rush that's similar to like getting high on drugs when we want to argue with somebody or is it something different? I mean, those things are happening. Dopamine, you, you know, I talk about dopamine a little bit in the book that dopamine is generally the, the that's the, the chemical that helps modulate a motivation system instead of getting, not, not to get too deep into that, but basically when you are surprised, dopamine modulates what happens afterward, which is your eagerness to learn from the situation to either recreate that surprise or make that surprise not happen again. The emotions, though, that are coming up inside the shower where you're getting ready to launch that argument, 
many of those are going into the social domain where you are feeling that threat of reputation, that reputation management thing is coming out. Sometimes it's because you feel like your identity is at stake, but oftentimes you feel like I want that person that is important to me to not enter the domain of them. And I feel like that's so important to me because if they enter the domain of them, I might lose out on all the good stuff we have in our dynamic. They might move out of the ally frame in my mind into the enemy frame, or they might go from being trustworthy to untrustworthy. The kinds of things I can share with them start, the circle starts to narrow and you feel that very viscerally. It's an ancient feeling, an emotion that comes up from somewhere very deep that is hard to put your finger on, hard to see clearly. You just feel it. And it becomes very important for you to try to really nail it with that message you're planning to give them, really nail it with that conversation you're going to put forth. And there's about a billion other things that are involved as far as like, depending on the conversation, if it's, if it's a romantic relationship, there's going to be lots of other stuff involved. If it's a familiar relationship, lots of stuff involved. If it's just purely a stranger on the internet, we sometimes do this. We sometimes will, will spend time in the shower thinking how I'm going to like really give a, <laughs> really take that person to the mat that I don't even know. But those are the things that are at play. Usually it's identity stuff. It's uh, either you want to secure your identity or you want to make sure that person is, you don't lose them to the them space that you're worried they might fall into if you don't pull them back because you're worried they're going into it. So do you think that that is also like the reason why we are refusing to change? Like even though like we know somebody, something might be right. I mean, perfect example is last night, the Warriors just beat the Celtics to win the NBA finals, right? Not a big, big NBA fan, but I know that happened. I know that's a fact, right? And let's just say there's a group of people that all they do is they hang out with like diehard Celtics fans. And so for some reason, they, they've convinced themselves that the Celtics won last night. But 99.999% of the world knows that the Warriors won. Like, is the reason that they're not able to change their mind and believe that the Warriors actually won is because they are, have created this identity based on who they belong to? Exactly. That's one of the best examples you could pull up because the, the first research into this was into how people look at football games. It was back in the 40s and 50s. The, the study, you can look it up, is called um, They Saw a Game is the name of the study. It was two Ivy League schools. They had footage of the game. It was one of those, it was a game where there were a lot of uh, penalties for bad sportsmanship, basically. And there was this argument taking place on campus of who actually was to blame. And they thought this is a great natural experiment we could play with. They would show the game to people. And depending on which school they were from, they would mark, have them mark down how many infractions their side committed versus the other side. And you can imagine, you, you know where it's going. You know, where, you know where, how it turned out. <laughs> and what they found was same game, same film, two completely different subjective realities emerged from it. So what is motivating them to arrive at two different subjective realities? Only what the school to go to. And for these people they were studying in these Ivy League schools, demographically, they were identical human beings. The only thing that happened was for some, somebody turned left, somebody turned right, somebody ate a sandwich, somebody didn't. Something happened where they end up going to this school or this school. And the result of it is they live in two completely different realities based off this. Even though this is neutral evidence sitting in front of them, they see two different things looking at it. And that is only modulated by the fact that they feel they need to make sure that whatever conclusions they arrive at ingratiate them to the other people that go to the school that they go to. Interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, it's so fascinating because if you think about it, it's it's so true. I mean, you hear a lot that you are a creature of your environment, and it's it's just so important to pay attention to that because we're creatures of habit and we're social creatures and we want to feel this sense of belonging. And this all, I mean, it's just, it's like a come to Jesus moment, I guess, for me as I'm talking to you, this all makes so much sense to me. And so with regards to like changing our mind, let's just say we decide like, all right, we've had this, this conversation with somebody else, like we've talked about, or even with ourselves about a certain belief or a value that maybe we haven't agreed with, but now we're changing our view on it. We've actually developed some new level of belief on something like what's going on inside of our brain when that happens. Like how does a person typically feel? Because I know in my experience, like sometimes it's mixed. Sometimes I feel really good. And sometimes my ego will be hurt. Like, man, like I can't believe I just caved to that. Yeah. Well, the brain, the brain walks a tightrope. You think of yourself in a proto-human environment. If you change your mind when you shouldn't, maybe a bad thing would happen to you. If you don't change your mind when you should, maybe a bad thing would happen to you. We are naturally inclined to go with what, what has worked so far. I mean, like we're here, we're talking every, my current model of reality seems to have be working to keep me alive. So you're going to favor what you currently think, feel, and believe always. It's going to be much harder to convince you to update than it is for you to interpret things as, oh yeah, that totally, I see this no matter how you see it, no matter what it is. Oh, I see that as as confirmation that everything I think, feel, and believe is true. That's our natural inclination. So clearly if someone confronts us with something that suggests, well, you might be wrong about that. You might need, you may not have the complete picture or your picture may be inaccurate. We're going to resist that. And there is a natural point at which you can overcome that. They call it the effective tipping point. In a purely controlled and scientific experimental environment, it takes 30% of the incoming information to be disconfirmatory before you will fall into cognitive dissonance and then try to resolve the dissonance by updating. But that 30% number can go way higher depending on all these motivating factors we've been talking about. If your identity is really at stake, it may take 90% of that information. or It may take something that is more important to you than, than that political topic. You know, somebody in your family may need be affected by it. And then like, oh, wow, the number comes down then. But there is a, there is a hard line at which you will update. It's just that the effort in the conversation is how do you help keep that line from being way up around 90? You need to do the work to reduce it either if you're for yourself or for the other party. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm learning so much in this conversation. I mean, cause I, I've definitely had experiences where I've changed my mind on something just to fit in. And then, of course, when you do it for the wrong reasons, after the fact, you feel like crap. Yeah, because the motivation went away, right? Yeah. Like once that once that influence disappeared, you went back to a more neutral state where you could just change for the sake of being right about the thing. Right, exactly. And then also, you know, I think I also feel like inferior in a way because I was like, man, like I'm better than that. Like I know that I was out of line with my own personal like integrity and I, I shouldn't have said that to say I believe something that I didn't just to fit in with a certain group of people. The last thing I want to ask you is something that I think a lot of people I've have struggled with for for quite some time. I mean, not just within the last few years, but like it's like what to believe. Like so when new information comes to them, and let's just use something neutral like a, let's just say there's information that comes out that a certain pair of running shoes will increase your 5k by 25%. And then there's research that comes out that says that pair of running shoes will not increase your running time by 25%. Like how do you how does how can somebody like decipher between like two things like that and know what to believe? 
Sure. You you have to think like a scientist. You have to never try to confirm, always try to disconfirm. Confirmation is the dark path. Disconfirmation is the light path. Always assume I could be wrong about this. And uh, here, here's a nice little thought experiment to do on yourself. And I'll answer that question you just asked after giving you this thought experiment. Ask yourself, are you right about everything right now at this moment? And if the answer is no, ask yourself, well, then what am I wrong about? And if you can't answer what you're wrong about, ask yourself, how come I can't answer what I'm wrong about? And then ask yourself, how would I go about resolving that? Okay. So that thought experiment leads to treat everything as a hypothesis and treat all evidence as something that gives one hypothesis more weight than the others. And you go with the thing that has the most evidence going forward. With this running shoe thing, that's just two sources. And you're going to probably modulate like most human beings based off trustworthiness. The easiest thing to do, the thing that gets you out of the conundrum the fastest is go, which one of these two sources do I trust more? That keeps you from having to do any more work. And that's totally natural. That's The world is far too complex for us to apply the scientific method to every little decision we have to make. But in that sense, ask yourself, what is underlying my trust in this regard? Am I using a good method to arrive at trustworthiness between these two sources? And if you want to go deeper than that, you want to apply the kind of research that would apply, give you more evidence in one direction than the other. If you, That's for purely fact-based conclusions. That's the, the best method for trying to get the best out of being the most right about the most things. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was trying to just kind of understand like, all right, because there's so much, there's so much information that's always coming at us. Like, how do we decipher like what's real and, and what's not real without getting into like politics or just stuff that's created divisiveness in the last few years? Like, I'm like curious, like, like how can somebody, if they want to go about certain things, like what can they do to reach a conclusion that they're okay with? Yeah, it's all, it's about methodology more than anything else. Epistemology, as they would say. How do you arrive at your conclusions? Are you using good methods to vet the reasons that you're putting forth to justify the decisions that arrive at, that give you the certainty you have in life? Sounds like a lot of steps, but it's not really. It's, it's about moving out of the frame of, I need to prove I'm right about everything, to being curious and open to being wrong about everything, and then searching through the world for the things that I feel certain about, apply the type of skepticism that will give you an opportunity to disconfirm those things that you might be wrong about. Where the chips fall after that will be a place where you are, uh, you're in a much better position to move forward as a person who has actually attempted to live in a more truth-based environment or an environment where you reduce as much harm as possible and put the least amount of poison into the world. Ah. Got it. Well, dude, this has been awesome. I think so many people are going to get a lot out of this episode. So David McRaney, thank you so much for coming on. Let people know if they want to buy the book, if they want to you know, listen to your podcast, if they want to check out more of your work, like where's the best place to do all that? Sure. The book is How Minds Change. Get it wherever you like to get your books. I always wanted you to support your local bookstores. But other than that, you can obviously get it at the big places where everybody knows books come from. How Minds Change is available everywhere. If you want to learn more about it, I have uh, more information at davidmcraney.com, my website. And all the other stuff I do falls underneath You Are Not So Smart. So there's a website for that. It's a podcast. I have like 235 episodes with lots of stuff like you heard in this episode in there. That's how you find all of my stuff. And I'm on Twitter just as at David McCraney. Well, I will make sure to plug all that stuff in the show notes. And for, for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. Maybe it was something that David said 
about like where things like beliefs, attitudes, and values are developed, like where do they come from? Maybe it was something he said as far as like why we're so polarized right now. Maybe it was something he said about how we can change our minds, like how we can have better conversations with ourselves and others to be able to like learn how to not only develop empathy, but to maybe shift our perspective on something, whatever it was, make sure to share your takeaway and tag David and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopst, and we'll see you next time.